0: So let's dive straight in. We have looked at our Father in heaven. We've looked at, hallowed be your name and your kingdom come. And we arrive at the third petition of this um, prayer so far. And it is, uh, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But what do we mean by your will or God's will? If we're going to pray this, we've got to have an understanding of God's will. R.T. Kendall says there's two ways in which we can understand uh, God's will. We can understand it as his revealed will and His secret will. And when we talk about the revealed will of God, we are very, very simply talking about Scripture, talking about the Bible. If you are wanting to know God's will, it is we need to open this book, and we need to read it, and devour it, and study it, and meditate upon it. It is by reading God's Word that we can come to know the will of God for our lives. And it is the most God-honoring way to seek out the will of God. It's by spending time praying and reading and meditating through the will of God. Now, having said that, though, it's probably one of the least exciting and boring and difficult ones because it takes a lot of time, it takes effort, it takes prayer and study and thought. While it is enriching and joyful, it is something that we struggle with, particularly in our society, where everything is at a click of a finger. We get upset if our phones take 10 seconds to upload something. We get upset if we have to wait 10 minutes at McDonald's for some food. We want it and we want it now. And to come to understand the will of God in in his revealed way takes time and effort. And it is difficult for us. However, having said that, there are in Greek there are two ways or one of two ways in which we can translate the word word. Um, I hope that made sense. Uh, There is logos and rhema. And these words mean something different, but at the same time, we can't push the distinction too far because there is some overlap. Now, the word rhema uh, means the prophetic. It means a word of knowledge, a direct word. A word from God to reveal His will to you. Now this is exciting. We had a, a kind of a prophetic word this morning. As Lauren says, I just feel like you should lift up your eyes off, off your struggles that you're going through. Stop digging in the dirt and look at Christ and look at God and let's glorify Him for who He is. And that was kind of uh, backed up with other people. came a bit of a word. This is what God is saying for us. And this is something that's great and is glorious and good. But I want to give us a bit of a warning this morning is that while this is something we must seek after and pursue after as a church, it must never ever take precedence up and above seeking the revealed will of God. It must never be the primary way in which we try and find out the will of God. It needs to be through His Word and His Word first. Then the other things will come along the way as well. Now, so that's what we mean by the revealed will. will of God is through Scripture primarily. But there also there's the secret will of God. Now what does that mean? Well, the secret will of God is what He has planned before the foundations of this world. It is the plan and His will that is um, unique and, and massive and big. It, is his, it refers to His infinite wisdom. It refers to His unrevealed plans for you and me, where we will grow up, who we might marry, how many children we might have, what job we might take, who would be saved and not saved, when God will come again in his second coming, uh, when he will pour out his Holy Spirit in unprecedented power, all these things that God has plans for, yet we just don't necessarily know about them. And this is the secret will of God. And again, this is something that's quite exciting. I think a lot of us would love to know what God had planned for our lives. Primarily because we're controlling. But there's also a real good sense of, oh man, I wish I knew what was happening in this and that. And we want to seek that out and look for that. And, and may I just heed a warning yet again. Seeking out the secret will of God must never become our primary thing up above seeking the revealed will of God. Now, you might uh, not necessarily want to take my word for it. Maybe you'll take R.T. Kendall's. Um, he says uh, this about it. He says... Getting an undoubted word of knowledge is easier than hours and hours of wrestling with God in reading the Bible and praying. So, here immediately, he just acknowledges it. Getting a a word of knowledge is far easier than spending hours and hours reading and praying. But he goes on to say, but the latter, reading and praying, should be our immediate and fundamental search. The secret will of God will be clear to you. Uh, sorry, the um, fundamental search. The secret will of God will be clear to you when you need to know it. Seek to know the secret will of God as your primary focus, and it will elude you. Aspire to know the revealed will of God, and you will again, you will gain the general knowledge of His will and receive a rhema word when you aren't expecting it. The more you seek to know God's revealed word, the more you will see His secret will unfold. And so this is what we're talking about when we pray, your will be done. We are speaking about both, not just one or the other. We're asking that all that God has revealed in His Word would take place and unfold, but also all that He has planned, all the secret plans that He has, also will take place in this world. And that's what it is, you see, your will be done on heaven as in earth. And so when we pray that this will would take place, we ask, Lord, it would happen as if it was in heaven, as it would take place here on earth as well. So what does that look like? Well, in heaven, there is, God's will is unrivaled. God's will is, un, there's no revolt against it. There's no reluctance for it to take place. And so when we ask that God's will would take place, we're asking, Lord, here on earth, would there be no rival to it? Would there Will no one re, be reluctant that your will will take place? Would this all happen as if it was happening in heaven? Would there be a freedom of worship to you in obedience and listening and obeying your will for our lives and in the world? Now that is an incredible, massive, big prayer to pray. And when we pray, to, our desire is that the whole world would experience this. Our desire is that this would be not for us only, but for this nation, for this continent, for the world, for the city. But when we pray this, just like, hallowed be your name and your kingdom come, we can't guarantee it for others, but there's only one person who we can guarantee it for. It's ourselves. Just like we made a commitment, Lord, we will hallow your name, and, and we want you to come and rule and we, in our hearts In your kingdom come. In the same way, when we pray, let your will be done, we are saying, Lord, I will do it in my life. There'll be no reluctance that comes from me. There'll be no resistance. There'll be none of that stuff. There'll be no revolt or rebellion against your will. But in me, I am going to let your will be done. We can't guarantee it for this world and we can't guarantee it for the church. but We can guarantee it for ourselves. But may I just say that is the hardest thing to pray. That to, to pray, thy will be done, is an extremely difficult thing to pray. It is vastly contrary to our human nature. We do not like to give over control. We as people and as a nation are inherently suspect to authority. We don't don't trust people when they tell us what to do. Maybe because we've had a bad government in the past and we currently have a bad government now. We just don't trust people with authority because they just tend to do what they want to do rather than what's beneficial to us. So when someone says, no, no, this is how you should live your life, we go, hang on a second, who who are you to tell me how to live? How, How can you say that kind of stuff? And now we might be able to say thy will be done, if we just have a minor, small aspect of it when we consider our day, as we wake up in the morning, Lord, would your will be done today, with my meetings and stuff, and there there might be a relaxed day, and it might be quite simple to pray then. But when we realize that what we're saying is, Lord, my hopes and my dreams and my goals and my desires, all that I have planned for my life— all of this, Lord, I, I lay it at your feet. I give it over to you. All that I, I want and all that I long for in life, Lord, I, I will not go my way, but I will go your way. Oh, man, you, you realize how, how difficult it is to pray that prayer with actual meaning and to do that? Particularly in the midst of suffering. Particularly in the midst of trial. When, when you're going through praying and hardship and you've experienced much loss, to, to cry out to God for help, but at the end of it say, Lord, thy will be done. You say, Lord, man, I want to get out of this, but you decide. It is to say, Lord, I know I'm in a valley and it's hard in life, but if the valley wants, if you need to carry, keep on taking me through this valley, so be it. Lord, we're in a wilderness at the moment, and I, and I wish it would end, but Lord, your will be done. If you want to keep on taking me through this, then let it happen. The magnitude and the hardship to pray such a prayer with meaning and truth is, is so difficult. It is when you long and deeply desire something in your life, and you pray and you ask for it, but the Lord says, no, it is hard So how do we get to a point where we can pray, Thy will be done with meaning and with all truth. And then I I, I read a lot of commentaries preparing for this sermon. And I can tell you now that a lot of them spoke about God's will and what it is and what it might look like and we should pray it and that means we must give up our will. But no one ever speaks about how difficult it is. And by God's grace this this week, I thought that God just led me to a sermon by Tim Keller And he just deals with this so well. So a lot of what I have to say this morning comes from that. But if we are to be able to pray this prayer with meaning in the midst of hardship and trial and difficulty, not just a a quick little one for our day, but really submit our lives as a whole to him with every dream and desire that we have saying, Lord, it is yours. If we are to achieve that as Christians, as followers of Christ, we need to look at Christ as our model and him for our strength. We need to look at Him as our model and Him as our strength. And there's only one place in Scripture that we see Christ pray this prayer. Where He says, Thy will be done. And that is the Garden of Gethsemane. So let us turn there. Matthew 26, verses 36 to 46. It says this. When Jesus went with them, that is His disciples, to a place called Gethsemane, he said to his disciples, "Sit here while I go over there and pray." And talking with his, uh, talking with uh, with him Peter and taking with him, sorry, with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, "My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me." And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. There it is. And he came to his disciples and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for a second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for a third time, saying the same words again. He would have said again, Thy will be done. Take this cup from me. Thy will be done. And then he came to his disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand. And the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Let us be going, See, my betrayers at hand. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at two things in this passage. We're going to first look at the magnitude of Christ's agony that he's experiencing here, and the immediacy of his agony. And then hopefully we're going to be able to get some life transforming truth out of that, that we are able to apply to our lives so that we might be able to say, thy will be done with meaning. So let's look at that first one, the magnitude of the agony of Christ. What do we mean by that? Well, let's look again in verse 36 and 30, uh, to 39. It says this, then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And and talk, taking Peter and the two sons of Zevi, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. He said to them, my soul is sorrowful even to death. Remain here, watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed. And so what do we see here is Jesus brings the 12 disciples. He tells nine of them to wait over there and pray. And he takes three with him, his his closest friends, his most intimate friends, Peter, James, and John, with him in his darkest hour and need. He says, come with me. We're going to go and pray. And as Jesus turns and to go to the place where he is about to pray, he probably would have started getting ready to pray or pray. And as he starts, it says, there was great sorrow. There is this Agony That comes upon Christ. He he is troubled. He he is shocked and he is horrified about something. He, he, He is so horrified that he describes his own emotional situation and so sorrowful that he says, my soul is sorrowful even to the point of death. And then Christ will fall onto his face and begin to pray. And he will say, Lord, take this cup away from me. Thy will be done. Three times. Jesus is experiencing here an immense agony. There is something that is incredible and, and huge about the agony that Christ is going through. But when we look at this agony that Christ is going through, it is very, very different to a lot of the stories that we see about his followers when they had to die because of their faith. We see examples in Scripture and outside of Scripture of people who are martyred for their faith, but they didn't go through the agony that Jesus went through. I mean, let's look at the biblical example of Stephen. In, 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 in Acts 6, what we see is Stephen gets arrest, arrested by the Sanhedrin. He's his man full of the Holy Spirit, preaching the gospel, doing amazing things for Christ. The Sanhedrin don't enjoy it because he's preaching Jesus. They arrest him. And in Acts uh, 6.15, it says, as they looked at Stephen, it says and gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. That is not a man who's scared. That is not a man who's sorrowful. That's, that is peace and hope and joy on that face. And Stephen will later be uh, be stoned because of it. Even when we look outside into church history, we see that there are many that didn't experience the hardships of Christ before they died. We think of an example of Hugh Latimer Nicholas Ridley. They died because of their faith in England in 1555. They uh, were going to be burnt at the stake. And as the flames engulf them, as they are being burnt alive, these famous words by Hugh Latimer is this, be of good comfort, Master Wrigley, and play the man. We shall, be, uh, we shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. Man, he has he been burnt alive. He, and then he compares himself and Master Wrigley, Nicholas Wrigley, as candles. They are on fire. And he says, we are like candles and God's glory is going to be seen throughout England because of this. God's going to use this, be of comfort. That is not a man who's sorrowful even in the midst of being burnt. But yet when we look at Christ, Christ here is horrified and he's shocked. He he is in extreme agony. And I know he prays, thy will be done, but he first prays three times, Lord, take this cup away from me. Take it away. Now, we've got to remember that Jesus was... Very aware that he was going to die it wasn 't like it was the first time he he found out this revelation from the father. He had foretold his death. Far earlier throughout all the Gospels, he told his disciples, I am going to die. Sometimes in in parables and sometimes plainly. Even that night, he knows he's going to die as he gives the Lord's Supper. As my body is broken for you. This is my body. This is my blood. Jesus knows that he is going to die. So that can't be it. can't be the knowledge of his death. But something else has pushed him into the dust. What was it? What was it? Why are his followers so poised and at peace in the midst of suffering and the midst of their death? But yet Christ is not. Clearly Christ is suffering in a way that his followers hadn't, that no human else has. What was unique about the death of Christ? Well, he tells us in his prayer to the Father, he says, let this cup pass from me. The cup that Jesus had was something that was unique that no other person had ever had to experience. None of his followers had. What do we mean by cup? Well, in ancient times, cup could mean a horrific ordeal. But it also could mean judgment. And we we see that uh, as a metaphor for judgment. We see it explained in the Old Testament, uh, Ezekiel 23 verses 33 and 34 says this, A cup of horror and desolation, the cup of your sister Samaria, you should drink it and drain it out, and gnaw it shards and tear your breast. That's, that's a very, very descriptive imagery of the pain and horror of the judgment that Israel were going to face. And in a very similar way, this is what Christ is experiencing, this massive, massive judgment. So what's happening here to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? He's starting to get a taste, a foretaste of what judgment is going to be like. He has had the Father remove his presence from him. As Jesus had gone and turns and prays, because we see it in verse 36, he tells him, sit over there and, and, and we're going to go pray. As Jesus turns and prays, he would have, as normal in, in the previous moment, started to get his mind right, started to... Usher himself into the presence of God, started to think of the Father and being perfect and holy. In other tables there would have been joy and peace and hope and all the things that comes being in this intimate relationship with no one else has ever experienced with the Father. He would have known what that feels like. And as he starts to walk to pray, he he suddenly he does not feel it. What was, what was once this most intimate relationship is suddenly he is gone. The father's not there. He's withdrawn his presence. He's withdrawn his presence. And you see the things of all, the reason why it is so tough and agony is because compared to his followers is when they died, the presence of the father and God was with them. When Stephen dies and he's being stoned, as the stones are hitting him and he falls to his knees, he, he looks up to heaven and he says, I see heaven open and the son of man standing at the right hand of the father. Oh, there is God's presence with him. He is comforted even in the midst of death. There's clearly something similar that's happening with uh, uh, Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley as well. But yet with Christ, there is this uniqueness to his death in that he is the only person that was a follower of God that had to die in without his absence. And what we see here is that he gets a foretaste, a a drop of this of this cup on his tongue. He gets to smell the, the cup of what he was gonna drink in full on the cross. He's essentially starting to experience what hell's gonna be like. Eternal and cosmic abandonments. And this is the magnitude of the agony of Christ. But why now? Let's turn to the immediacy of the agony. Why now? Why not wait until the cross for, for Christ to experience that? Why in the Garden of Gethsemane? Jonathan Edwards, one of the greatest theologians ever, greatest American theologian for sure, preached a sermon on Luke's account of this in the Garden of Gethsemane. And, and he, and he answers the question. He says, if Christ had to only experience the full wrath of God on the cross without having a foretaste of it, Christ would have been nailed to there, and he would have experienced it for the first time, and there would be nothing he could have done about it, because he's kind of nailed to the cross. There's no no option for him to flee. There's no option for him to go away. But now in the Garden of Gethsemane, when it is pitch black and dark, there's no one watching him. I mean, his disciples are sleeping. Even though he's told them to wake up three times, they are sleeping The guards have not arrived yet to come and take him away. As he tastes this horrific ordeal, Christ has every option to leave. And no one will know where he's went. But in doing this, in in God allowing Christ to have a foretaste of what he is going to suffer, what he allows him to do is to Christ to volunteer perfectly, knowing exactly what he was going to go into. He he allows Christ to to experience, um, uh, to know it, so that he might go on his own action. It's an absolute act of love. It's not forced, because if he hadn't quite known what he was going to get into, it kind of seems it's not properly volunteering. But there's this fullness of the intimacy and love of Christ that he knows exactly what he's going to go to. He could have changed his mind. He could have pulled out. He could have said, Lord, I take this cup away from me. Not thy will, my will. He could have done that, and yet it would not have displayed his fullness of his love. But when he goes and he experiences all of what he's going to go into, he has a foretaste of it, and he knows the suffering, and he says, yet I will still go into that for them. It is a demonstration of his fullness of love. It's a a fullness of his obedience, knowing exactly what he's going to go for, because he's not ignorant of it. He lays down his life on his own accord. We see that in John 10. Jonathan Edwards explains this uh, with a wonderful imagery. He says this, God first brought him and set him at the mouth of a furnace, so that he might look in and stand and view its fierce and raging flames. And might see what he was going, where he was going, and might volunt- might voluntarily enter into it and bear it for the sinners, as knowing what it was. If Christ did not fully uh, know before he took it and drank it, it would not have probably been his own act as a man. But when he took it as a cup, knowing when he did so, was his his love to us infinitely more wonderful and his obedience to God infinitely more perfect. It was as if God was coming to him and saying, this is the cup that you have to drink. This is the furnace that you're going to be thrown into. And you have to drink it and go into it if you want to save them. You need to perish so that they might perish, so that they don't perish. You need to feel this heat and know what you're going for, because if you do and you love them, man, you will save him. He gives it and demonstrates to him the fullness of what he's going to experience, that Christ can lovingly and obediently choose to save us. Beautiful. So why are we looking at this? Because Christ does something here in the dark, where no one else was looking. He didn't have to do it; he wasn't forced to do it. Yet he says, "Thy will be done." It's an incredible act. Maybe this will help us understand how incredible it was. Let's talk about some systematic theology briefly and quickly. In in Scripture, we see there are these terms called uh, there are two Adams. If you will. There's the first Adam in Genesis one, we see Adam created. That's the first Adam. But also Paul likes to describe Christ as the second Adam. Why does he do that? Because as Adam represented us in the Garden of Edom and he sinned and we all seen as sinful as a result of his actions and ours, but because of him we are now inherently sinful. So with Christ, Christ when he dies on the cross, he represents all of mankind. So that ever believe in him, his actions will be made our own. Does that make sense? So Christ represents us just like Adam represented us in the Garden of Eden. So he talks about Christ being the second Adam. So in the 2 Corinthians, we see this in Romans 5, Christ being the second Adam. Now, this, there's a uncannily similarities between the first Adam and the second Adam in this passage. And the first Adam is in a garden. And God tells him, you better obey me about this tree. And the second Adam, Jesus, he's in a garden. And God says, you better obey me about this tree, the cross. The first Adam there says, You better he has, he's in the garden, you better obey me about this tree, and if you do so you will live. The second Adam, he says, You know, he's in the garden, you better obey me about this tree, the cross, and I'm gonna crush you. The the first Adam he he says, You you better obey me about this tree and, 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 and when you do, you will live and I will be with you. With the second Adam, he says, You better obey me about this tree and I will crush you and I will abandon you. And the responses are also different. The first Adam was promised life and the fullness of God's presence, and yet he did not obey. And yet with Christ, he was promised to be crushed and abandoned, and yet because of his love for you and out of obedience for Christ, he, of obedience to God, he obeys. Christ does something that is uniquely special. Uniquely special in that... He obeys even when no one is asking. He obeys and, is, and even when God has promised that he will forsake him. No other believer, none of us will ever go through hardships and difficulties. And when God says we must obey him in those hardships, will he abandon us? But Christ, yet he has said, obey me and I will abandon you. It's the wonders of God's love for us. But this is what it means. This is what it means to say your will be done. It's demonstrated perfectly in Christ. This is what it means to say your will be done. So what we're going to do briefly is we're going to look at two things. We're going to look at Christ as our model and as our power, as, our, as integrity. And we're going to look at his model and power as our, as our trust. So, firstly, let's look at Christ as our model, in other words, our example, and our power to be it as an integrity. We see that in the midst of darkness, Christ goes, and He does, and He is obedient. No one is watching. I've emphasized this already. No one is watching. No one is looking. No one is there. There is no reward for him. The disciples in whom he is about to save and go through hardships for, they don't see, they're not privy to this conversation. They're not, they're not, they don't know what's happening here. They, they are sleeping. And yet he does not say, oh, they are watching. And they going, oh, Lord, save us. And there's a bit of encouragement because they, they are useless. They are banning him in his darkest hour. Only God's watching. And yet Christ is obedient. Now, may I say we are not like that. When it is dark and no one's around, we are not people of integrity. When we know that we can do something we want to do but shouldn't do and we'll get away with it, we tend to do it. We are not in people of integrity. We do what we should not do in the dark. So how do we become one? Well, first we need to see Christ as our example. But secondly, how do we pray thy will be done when no one is watching so that we can do it? We look at Christ and we see that in the midst of darkness, He suffered and did the integrity things to save us. And so when we look at Christ as our example and we see that He saved me even though no one was watching. He did what was right in obedience to God when no one was watching. I then go, Lord, well, I know this is hard for me, but you took the cup for me so I will take the small cup for you. He becomes our motivation to pray that will be done when no one is watching. Let's, let's look at the second one, model, the model and power of trust. Jesus is Extreme, important, amazing model of trust to the Father in this example. He is a bane card, even though he's going to go through awful, awful suffering. No good is about to come his way. Nothing. And yet Christ somehow prays and says, Lord, thy will be done. Now, I want us to notice here that Christ doesn't pretend everything's okay. Jesus doesn't put on a happy face and think that everything's all, all happy and we, we're in the garden, I'm about to get rest. No, no, he, he experiences the hardship of an agony of being separated by the Father, and he's honest about it. He's emotionally honest about it. And so when we look at Christ as our example, we can have some comfort in knowing that we can be honest about how we're feeling. That we don't have to pretend and put our feelings aside. We can be honest to God and say, Lord, this is awful. We can cry and scream and shout and say, take this away from me. But we always need to follow his model completely. But we need to say, "Thy will be done. It is important that when we do this, we find a balance of both. It's important because if we just say, Thy will be done, but never express our emotions. That is emotionally unhealthy. And, and two, it just causes a place for bitterness and anger. As we don't express our hardships and, and, and say, Lord, I really don't understand why I'm going through this. This is awful. I'm hurting. If we don't express that, it can create bitterness towards God. However, we can't just express our, 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 um, our emotions without saying, Thy will be done. Because if we do that, what happens is we get to express our emotions, but we never ever get to experience the peace of being in the will of God. There's a peace that comes with saying, thy will be done and being in the will of God like no other. And so we have to find that balance. And may I just say that God is big enough to hear you moan, to hear you scream. We see it throughout the Psalms. The Psalmist shouts, Lord, you've abandoned me, where are you? But he always ends off with praise and saying, Thy will be done. We need to make sure that that and God understands that as well. He knows how you're feeling. He's not caught off guard when you say, Lord, this is how I'm feeling. He knows. Express it. But end off with our will be done. But how do we trust God in the midst of suffering? when we don't get what we desperately want in life because we feel that is what it is? How do we trust God to say, thy will be done, even when we're in the valley and in the wilderness and things are going tough? Well, in order to trust someone, you need to know that they love you. And man, when we look at this example and we look at Christ, we see a fullness of love demonstrated for us, don't we? We see a God that loves us so deeply that he would take on this cup for you and me. And so if this God would take such a cup for you and me, surely when he says, trust me, surely when he says, obey me, that even if it ends in suffering and hardship, that I know that where he is leading me, he will lead me into something that is good. That I can trust him. We only trust people when we know that they, they love us and we can see a fullness of love in Christ. So these are two ways in which we can pray "Thou will be done. It only comes by fixing our eyes on Christ. It only comes by knowing that he prayed that prayer for you. If we don't get that, man, when things get hard and and, and, and life's storms come our way, we will not be able to do it. But when we fix our eyes on Christ, in the midst of hardships, in the midst of difficulties, in the midst of loss and pain and a lack of what we think we might need. And we say, Lord, this is what I desire. This is what I want, but not my will, but your will be done because we fixed our eyes on Jesus. That's when we can do it fully. Without him, we can't. Let us pray. Would you just take a moment just to thank him? I don't want to rush from this. Let's, let's take a moment to say thank you for the cross. I know we sung it earlier. Thank him for saying, thy will be done.